my sentences. It happens. But I God's do? will. Is that God's will? That's God's will. Okay, I now I want to. I mentioned this upstairs. So I mentioned pr- uh, prior that HBO Max. I'd highly recommend it to anybody right. because they have all these other networks attached to them, including Turner Classic Movies. Right? TCM. TCM. So I'm like, okay, there's a lot of these old movies I need to watch. Mm. Uh, and the name James Dean, right? Mm. Not the porn star. Not the abusive porn star. No. Alleged abuser okay. of. Oh no, I can't remember her name now. <laughs> I, I've like, never heard this. Yeah, she was, uh, oh man, it's like a Russian sounding name, but she's not Russian. I'll think of it at some point. Okay, well anyway, the actor, right? Everybody loves him, everybody loves his movies, I think he only did like three of them. That's right, and then he died. Right. So, uh, have you ever watched Rebel Without a Cause? I have. Okay, what the fuck is going on here? I. It's just, in the span of a day, okay... He gets drunk. He's drunk. Gets arrested. Yeah. Meets a girl. Yeah. And by the end of the episode, he movie. Yeah. He accidentally kills her boyfriend, but then she's in love with him. But then's in a a hostage situation with the cops. Right. About his friend, his apparent best friend that he made over the span of one day. One day. Best Just, BFF. Ride or die. My favorite part was. The girls in the beginning is talking to the cop about her dad. It sounds like the dad's abusing her, right? Right. And then later in the movie, she keeps trying to kiss her dad on the lips. Oh, oh. And he doesn't want... He's like, oh. you're too old to be kissing me like that. She keeps trying to kiss him on the lips. Oh. <laughs> he slaps her. And I'm like, why do you have to kiss your dad on the lips? I know. It's like the goddamn Sons of Anarchy, which I've been rewatching. Okay. Where fucking Jax and Gemma kiss a little too hard sometimes <sighs> to be mother and son. I, I Maybe some people do it. I don't know. It just seems a little... Was the 50s, was that appropriate to kiss your parents on the I lips? I guess. I guess, well, you know what? Come to think of it, I kiss Granny on the lips. Okay. I do. Well, maybe she'll a let us peck. know. A quick peck. Okay. One of those. Well, she, the girl in a rubble without a cause kissed her dad on the lips like three times and he kept getting mad. Yeah, that's too much. So, that's three too many. Yeah. But how did Rebel Without a Cause end? Uh, the the His friend gets shot by the cops. Mm. With the, be- the best part is he's running out with the gun and the cops are telling him whatever, drop it. He's trying to run off with the gun exposed. They shoot him. After he's down, then James Dean's like, I had the bullets! Mm. How were the cops supposed to know you had the clip when you don't mention it at all? Yeah, and cops will light you up yeah. if you're holding a fucking sandal <laughs> yeah. or a toy train. Like, what Because the cops hell? are garbage, yes. No, it's terrible. But there is the one interesting thing in the movie where, in the beginning, I don't know if it's how they used to police people, but they'd get arrested, and then they would talk to a detective... And then if he could, like, work things out, then he'd just let you go verse. You go in the cell and wait for the magistrate. Sure. Very interesting. I don't sure. know. Very, like, they talk to him first, figure out the situation, and then determine, like, okay, go home, sober up. Well, maybe that's, you want, uh, maybe that's a much better way of dealing with things than it is, <laughs> like, ruining someone's life for yeah. making a dumb, drunk decision. It was just so weird. Maybe that's the way they used to police. I, don't I think know. it was. Like, you was talk a... to the lead detective, and he's like, okay, let's figure this out. Like, uh, the, the girl who is telling on her dad, 
He's like, do you want me to call your dad to come pick you up, or do you want to sleep overnight at the police station? It wasn't, like, anything more than that. It was sure. very weird. And all she wanted to do was kiss her dad on the lips, Just give apparently. Him a, little, a little lip smooch. So now I'm, I gotta watch East of Eden, and I don't know mm. what his other movie is. You don't like that one? It's boring. Is it? I don't know. I think old movies are boring. If I'm being God's honest, <laughs> there, there's, we've make, we've come a long way. Mm. Like 50s movies, at least there was like an A plot, B plot resolution. Yeah. Then we get into the 70s. And those movies just end like whatever. Like <laughs> nobody gave a fuck. No. The, all of a sudden, the main character could be standing there, walk off screen. You hear a gunshot, and then credits roll, out, and you're like, "Well, I don't know what, what happened." Okay, what what seventies movie are you thinking of? I'm thinking of specifically a Charles Bronson movie. Haven't watched too many of his. Yeah. A lot of people, uh, that was their hero. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He also used to smack the fuck out of women on camera. <laughs> yeah. Like, hard and real, because he's disgusting. Hitchcock but. style? Yes, yes, yes. Holy cow. If you look at old movies where actors are actually, like, slapping the shit out of women, that's pretty weird. Yeah, it is. It mm. is. It's very weird. But or I guess that was more accepted back then, huh? Yeah, I should, I should know this from all my... Uh, italian giallo movies yeah they a lot of slapping each other yeah the italians are famous for talking with their hands anyways i mean there's like in theirs it's men and women it doesn't matter they just slap slap everybody they're very passionate people (laughs) they just slap the shit out of each other that's how they solve a dispute i guess Uh, all right hello everybody welcome to another episode of the bumblebutt podcast the only podcast on the internet that uploads weekly who knows what it'll be about this week? It's the finale Hell of Marcel yeah. Pichot. Jordan, the dilation update this week, dilation countdown. It's completed. I think she's back to normal, in <laughs> fact. The dilation is over. The baby is out. We don't know the details, though. I don't know We anything. don't know if, because uh, as far as I could tell, it was literally, so the expected date was the 17th, mm. and she gave birth uh, at like 12.30 a.m., on the 18th, so basically 17th. So She carried it over term by, by 20, three minutes. 24 20 minutes. minutes. 24 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> well, can they tell the baby from here on out? Um, you are, a, uh, what do they call that when you're over the date? Like a late? A postie? Yeah, <laughs> I post. don't know. They call them preemies when they're premature. <laughs> yeah, so. what is the post? But I'm saying, we don't know if it was a natural birth or whatever. We don't know any of the details. So. All we know is little Olivier, mm-hmm. Oliver mm-hmm. is his actual name, but I like to say the French version since we're doing a French man. <laughs> Olivier? I feel like I Fox. just I just watched something in a French, a French movie, so I should be prepared now, but now I can't remember what it is. Well, French, <laughs> here's, uh, I was trying to think about listening back on this series. I tried to do a French accent multiple times. Mm. The problem is, I can hear it perfectly. I can hear every single line of dialogue Lumiere says in Beauty and the Beast. Okay. But my mouth just can't make the noises. I think I remembered now. I was watching Knives Out. Okay. Which is free on Prime. I would recommend it it's to everybody. Good. I, I like it. Even Pouty Daniel Craig is good. He, he was probably my favorite character in the movie. All right. Awesome. He does a uh, Cajun, Louisiana, French accent. Oh, my. So, mm. beautiful. So, I was like, why does he have a French name? Then, then I'm like, oh, he's a. Uh, Cajun French, whatever, He's a whatever bayou that, dweller. Yeah, yeah, whatever that weird thing that was going on there. <laughs> yeah. All the Frenchies French down Asians. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So 
He's pretty good. I like him. Well, fantastic. His eyes scare me. Well, that's Cody. <laughs> Cody, good job. Thank you. We discussed your week already. We did, I think. And we'll talk about it more in depth on Between the Bumbles. Hell but yeah. I'm Adam, and we're going to hop in. This is the Marcel Petcho final episode. We're going to find out his fate, okay? Okay. We can bring him to justice, I would assume. If you'll remember from the last one, mm. D-Day kind of took over the, the news cycle a bit. It's a, it's a big event. It's a big one. Mm. August 31st, 1944. The Mad Butcher was no Nazi propaganda myth, wrote the United Press. He is a swarthy, sinister-looking man with the sadistic features of a Lovecraftian nightmare and the cleverness of a scientist. Okay, did they not like HP during this time? Yeah, they loved him. Did they? Yeah. Okay. Isn't that kind of comparing him to a serial killer right now? Or like one of his characters? Well, some I, of Lovecraft's I, nightmares were pretty disgusting I, and despicable. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Anybody during this time who read those probably were, like, pissing and shit in their bed. They were so Definitely. scared, so. Definitely. Like, I, Hitchcock I, didn't come out yet. It was still true, 1944. True, I'm sure after he came out, they would have said, a Hitchcockian <laughs> nightmare. <laughs> okay. The recent liberation of Paris, shortly after D-Day, had finally put to rest the rumor that Petio was a Gestapo fabrication. One policeman said he wished the murderer was a Nazi-manufactured boogeyman, as that would make the 54 victims they'd found so far also just a bad dream. 54? Holy shit. That's how many they've found and are currently attributing to Marcel at okay. this time. This, that's very interesting. I mean, I suppose that it would be pretty easy to blame it on the, the Nazis, obviously. Sure. Or <laughs> so. just people running away. Yeah, right. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Along with the liberation came a number of underground newspapers, many of which had names like Resistance, mm. Liberty, and Deoccupy. These papers served mainly to spread information about Nazi collaborators that still held office in France. French police leaked some details on the Petio case to an upstart young journalist and resistance fighter named Jacques Yannet. On September 19, 1944, Yannet published an article in Resistance titled Petio, Soldier of the Reich. So they're trying to just say, hey, this isn't our guy. This is the Germans guy. This Very guy clever. had no... Th yeah, exactly what Yane is saying is this guy had no involvement with the resistance. Mm. He was certainly just killing Frenchmen. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. He's definitely killing French people. You know what? That picture you sent me, that there, or Marcel looks like in that picture, I can't think of his name, the guy from Deadwood. The guy Swearingen. Who, Swearingen. Yeah. He looks like him. Like a skinny Swearingen. Right. Yeah. That's all I could see when I saw a picture of him. <laughs> a few days later, there was a huge break in the case. A long, handwritten response signed by someone insisting to be Marcel Pichot arrived at the newspaper office, forwarded by attorney René Florio. To verify the authenticity, police obtained a sample of the doctor's writing and asked a graphologist to study the two specimens. He concluded they were genuine, and Pecho's full rebuttal was published October 18th, 1944. Cody, would you mind reading this snippet? Okay. I don't know if I can do French, but I'll just read it normally. Dear Mr. Editor, all accused persons should be considered innocent until proven guilty. Because of law and justice, I have the right to defend myself and to ask you to print my answer. The police have invented these vicious details with their sick imaginations. <laughs> so he can't help himself. Oh, no. He's a glory hound. Yep. He then went on to explain how he's been a longtime member of the resistance and had fought valiantly against the Nazis, 
only to be arrested, tortured by the Gestapo, and imprisoned for almost eight months. This is true. He was held, and they did a lot of horrible things, like try and squish his head, put his head in a vice, they filed his teeth down, they suspended Ooh. him by his jaw at one point, which is pretty disgusting. Like, right, like... Are you saying they were doing this while he was missing? Mm-hmm. Really? Yes. This okay. is where he was during those eight months, and then up to ten months because he visited his brother in Auxerre after that. So Ooh. he was in a Gestapo prison Shaved until his then. teeth. Yep, filed his teeth down. I don't even like going to the dentist. I can't even imagine. He would have lifelong, uh, everyday sporadic short migraines from Ugh. from the filing and the squishing and all of it. What, yep. I, when, I mean, when you shave deep enough, your nerves are exposed. Mm -hmm. so. so I assume any temperature, <laughs> yeah. anything that touches them, Just, or even your teeth touching each other would send them into a tizzy. I would say pull them out, put hardened crouton, croutons up there, Perfect. call it a fucking day. That way when you suck them, <laughs> you suck on them, you get a little bready taste. A little taste. salty goodness yeah, a little on garlicky. there. garlicky. Mm -hmm. Delicious. Then he outlined his patriotic services to the resistance. His code name, Peccio admitted, was Dr. Eugene, and he claimed to have served in the resistance cell known as Flytox, which concentrated on stealing secrets from the German industry. Okay, well, he's good at stealing. Yeah, he's a so. klepto uh, <laughs> genius. Peccio next discussed his liquidations, as he called his murders, insisting that they were always... Germans and collaborators and Gestapo agents. It was outrageous, he said, to call him a soldier of the Reich. He also wrote this entire note in the third person because he's a fucking jackass. <laughs> so keep that in mind as you hear okay. his closing paragraph. Okay. The author of these lines, far from having committed dishonorable acts, far from having forgiven his tortures, and still further from having helped them, adopted a new synonym immediately after his release from the German prison. He has also retaken his place with the resistance with another new synonym and asked <laughs> for a more active role in order to avenge the hundreds and thousands of Frenchmen killed and tortured by the Nazis. <laughs> he always remained in contact with his friends and fought for the liberation to the best of his abilities, mm. despite the dangers that his action has caused him. Mm. He still contributes as much as possible to the liberation, having lost everything except his life. He is risking even that under a false name, scarcely hoping that tongues and pens now freed from their shackles will tell a truth so easy to guess and forget the clumsy kraut lies that require only two... Two sous, is it Sue? Sue, yeah. Only two sous of French common sense to see through. <laughs> what is two sous? That is their, like, uh, penny. Okay, mm -hmm. all I kept thinking about is two sous chefs. Two, <laughs> <laughs> two sous chefs of like French he, common sense Like, to is see he through. saying... It takes two sous chefs to see common sense or what? Like, usually sous chefs are pretty well respected. Yeah. Right? I mean, Jesus. God, this guy, there's nothing better than listening to somebody talk about themselves oh. in the third person. And in the most flowery, <laughs> lame way yeah. possible. God damn. Like, that should be in a H.P. Lovecraft novel right there. <laughs> Shit, yes. He's basically making himself sound like, uh, who's the guy from Wolfenstein? 
uh, uh, BJ Blaskowitz. <laughs> yeah, he's basically the French version of that right now. BJ Blaskowicz. Mm. That's what the uh, Polish lady. Man, I like those newer games that came They are out. pretty good. The only thing that annoyed me was having to push a button to pick up ammo instead of just running it over. <sighs> I hated that. Yeah, we're we're past that point now. <laughs> yeah. We shouldn't have to do that kind of stuff. Uh, we were past that point on, like, 1990s Doom. Yes. <laughs> yeah, on. exactly. You ran right out. Yeah, because you <laughs> yeah. didn't have an uh, up and down access, right? Right, right. The police, of course, were over the moon by this response. Not only did this letter confirm that Petcho was still alive, as many detectives were certain he was dead, mm. but it also provided clues to his whereabouts. In addition to admitting that he was in fact Dr. Eugene, he also told them that he had several other pseudonyms <laughs> and gave them eight more pages of handwriting to check against other resistance letters. Eight pages. He yes. is nothing if not verbose, Cody. Mm. Okay, well I guess he's got a little Stephen King in him. The envelopes, <laughs> the envelopes postmark showed that the letter had been mailed in Paris, and the speed in which Petio wrote back to the paper suggests that he still may be in the capital. Mm. From here, many people were able to help track down the serial killer. Once Petio's response hit the papers, everyone in the FFI, the French Forces of the Interior, which is the blanket term for the resistance, mm. were on the lookout. Okay. Police investigators were more optimistic about the case than they had been in months, but they were now racing against the clock. What are the hats those guys wear? Those little... Uh, the French berets. Like, okay, yeah, berets. Yeah, that's okay. what I kept thinking of. I thought you were talking like the Shakos that they used to wear in Napoleonic days. Those like bucket hats with the little <laughs> brim on them. You know what I'm saying? Yes. And they have a big plume on the top. I can't wait till hipsters start wearing them. Shakos? That would be great. Mm, we used to wear them know, in drum corps and marching band. Okay. That's kind of kind of looks like the hat the little monkey wears when it's like on the music box, right? Those? That's a fez. <laughs> oh, that's a fez. Yes. Okay. That's that little... Probably a fez. The little Moroccan hat with the little tassel on it. Okay, those things Steven Spielberg invented, right? Yeah, that's correct. (laughs) (laughs) On Halloween 1944, a man in khaki FFI uniform, armband, dark glasses, and thick beard stepped out on the platform of the St. Manturel railway station. A stranger immediately walked up to him and asked the time. Then the stranger kicked the man in the dick, (laughs) and three other men jumped on him. The man in khaki was carried out of the station, blindfolded, gagged, and with hands cuffed and feet bound. After seven months and 20 days eluding arrest, Marcel Petiot had been taken into custody. So he got caught by so fast by getting insulted about asking the time. He walked up to him and he said, hey man, do you know the time? He reached in his pocket to look at his watch and the dude kicked him in the dick and three other dudes tackled him. Okay, well, you don't ask for time in France, I guess. Or don't help anyone, ever. (laughs) Or they'll kick you in the dick and tackle you. Well, I mean, when you you can't just look at your watch or your cell phone. you got to pull out this big pocket chain. (laughs) Fuck yeah, fuck yeah. It's kind of an inconvenience, to be honest. It's, man, you know Apple Watches were invented because people were too lazy to even (laughs) take out their fucking phones. Back at the station, Pecho was forced to remove his FFI armband and uniform so that he would no longer sully the honor of the French army. Okay. Pecho was carrying a loaded pistol, 31,780 francs in cash, a bunch of false IDs, a communist party card that was only eight days old, 
a number of ration cards under various names, including one for a little boy named Rene with the last name smudged out. Okay, that seems like a lot of money. It certainly is yeah. a lot of money. Hmm. I was trying to think of what is expensive in France, and I couldn't think of anything. Especially during this time, you couldn't get, <laughs> yeah. like, everything was rationed, you know? Mm. What's a French car? Do you know? Do they exist? Yeah, Peugeot, mm. Citroën. Okay, maybe you had one of them. You could have bought one of them. Mm. In possibly the largest twist of the entire series, Marcel Pachot pretended to be a completely fictional man named Captain Henri Valeri of the FFI. With his thick beard, he was even able, as Captain Valeri, to maneuver himself into the investigation and help find the killer of Rue Le Sueur. <laughs> what the fuck? He even had a secretary who told investigators she was flabbergasted upon finding out who her boss actually was. Okay, did they not did they not have like a wanted poster or anything? Oh, they like did. This guy looks like <laughs> Captain Henry? Captain Henrik? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Maybe the I mean, you saw him with a beard and you saw him it's without true. a beard. That's true. We'll post a picture of him without a beard for the <laughs> for the Patreon. Tomorrow. It's funny how you have a written here Captain Henry Valeri of the FF1. It seems like a boss on <laughs> <in> Final Fantasy 1. <laughs> <laughs> Captain Henri Valeri of Final <laughs> Fantasy One. <Yeah. laughs> Commissioner Massu didn't have the honor of arresting Pacho. Massu had been arrested on August 20th, 1944, accused on four specific charges of collaboration with the enemy. One of the documents Pacho carried at the time of his arrest was a 10-page long manifesto on how terrible Massu <laughs> was at being a patriot and a police officer. According to Pacho... The former head of the Brigade Criminelle should be suspended not just from his duties, but, more important, from the end of a rope. So he wants a bed. <laughs> well, he is a serial killer, so... Here's, here's the thing I will say. In a lot of these guys we've looked into, the the lead cop who's doing all the work seems to be the one who never actually gets to, like, take him down. I know. I know. It's always like that. He always gets gout or, like, killed in the line of duty, or in this mm -hmm. case... Well, we'll find out. In December 1944, the depressed former commissioner slit his wrists. Holy shit. Rushed to the hospital, Massey recovered and eventually returned to face the court of charges of collaboration, which on April 20th, 420, 1945, <laughs> cleared him of everything. There was not one single anti-national act with which one could reproach Massey, said Arthur Arod, president of the Bureau of Police Chiefs. Massey would return to the police force and serve with distinction. After his retirement in 1947, he went to work security at the American Embassy in Paris. As it turns out, there is also an, a French author, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a billion detective novels that were basically, the lead character was based on Detective Massey. Really? Yep. So what, did, what was the main reason that he decided to try to kill himself? Just because... It, you know Bud because Dwyer? Of this letter? You remember oh. how Bud Dwyer could have gotten off if he would have waited yes, two days? Yes, yes, Same thing. Like, he he was facing the court. He knew he was a patriot. He was involved in the inner police resistance force. Mm. But during this time, people were getting purged. Everyone was going before collaboration tribunal. Like, ladies that were suspected of... Sleeping with the enemy, they would have their heads shaved with, like, swastikas in the side, and they were kicked so, out of town and all that so stuff. So pe people weren't waiting for the truth to come out. They just, they heard a rumor, 
Jumped on it immediately. And then you went to uh, a hastily thrown together collaboration tribunal and you were judged a Nazi collaborator and you were stripped of everything and thrown out of uh, town. Have you uh, have you been following that Keemstar drama? I have not. I okay. didn't know Keemstar was having any drama. Well, you know how he's he get something about because he kind of like tries to expose people and it turns into bullying them in the YouTube world. Right. And one guy ended up killing himself right? because he accused him of being like a rapist or something like that. So now people are like attacking him and he's he's always like telling all these people they're molesters or pedos or whatever. So everybody's kind of turning on him. Good. Because it, that, like crying wolf like that has mm, serious implications. Mm. Calling someone a rapist is a serious thing to do. Well, they had... Uh, they had this really, really old guy, and I think he's famous from playing RuneScape on Twitch. Okay. Okay, I can't remember what his name is. He kind of looks gangster, but uh, Keemstar can... Okay, Keemstar tried to say that he was a pedophile grooming like a 13-year-old. Sure. But then it seems like Keemstar had hired someone to act as a 13-year-old to trick him into saying something. To get uh, plays for his video, a honeypot. Yeah, I see. Yeah, so I'm just saying the whole thing is like sometimes when you hear something immediately, don't just assume that's Mob exactly what exactly. it is. Yep. So well, look at Emmett Till. Mm. Especially with the goddamn. Well, yeah, obviously back then it was way worse, but with the internet now and everybody can make up shit. Mm-hmm. You got to be real careful. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm so cynical. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, Captain Simonin was the arresting officer that kicked Marcel in the dick. Mm. As he explains it, he discovered Pecho's whereabouts thanks to a tip from a subordinate. This corporal told him the suspect was staying in an apartment owned by the corporal's mother, and when Simonin checked it out, sure enough, Pecho left that building every morning, took the metro, and exited at the Ruli Diderot for a quick walk to the armory where he was investigating himself under the name Captain Henri Valeri. I'm gonna. I mean, this guy's a horrible man, but he is playing 5D chess right now. You're goddamn right. What a <laughs> what a twisted fucking psycho. I love it, but also he's a sick, twisted psycho. Here's my other question, Captain's uh, Simonin. Is that that literally sounds like when someone can't say the word cinnamon? Oh my! You know gosh, what I'm saying? Yes. You ever hear someone who gets tripped up on cinnamon? Cinnamon toast, please. <laughs> <laughs> you got any cinnamon? <laughs> That's like you and Vietnamese. <laughs> I know. Imagine if someone actually was named Vietnamese. Vietnamese. However you say it, I don't even know Vietnamese. anymore. Vietnamese. Think about it like this, okay? What do they call the Vietnam War in shorthand? I was Nam? in Nam. Vietnamese. Just say Vietnamese. Well, after making the arrest, Captain Simonin did not immediately hand Pecho to the police. Instead, he questioned him about his activities in a little private interrogation. Okay. From the get-go, Pecho took on a brash, condescending tone, swearing to be a hero of the resistance. According to Simonin's account of the private interrogation... Pecho would go on to explain his services for the resistance, saying he started working for them in 1941 when he had used his work as a physician to demoralize German officer patients who came to consult me. So basically, he would tell them they were way sicker than they actually were to try and get them to go back to Germany. Okay, all right. 
This work caused him to hook up with his first resistance organization, who would send him French operators who had returned ill or wounded from their work in Germany, so he could patch them up. Mm. By late 1941, Pachot had allegedly made many more contacts in the resistance circles, even receiving training from a man from London who was supposedly a license-to-kill-style British secret agent. Fucking Pierce Brosnan? What the fuck's going on here? (laughs) Fucking 007 agent? (laughs) Marcel then told Simonin all about his current resistance group, supposedly called Flytox, that specialized in tracking down and executing informers and collaborators. He chose the name Flytox because of a famous French pesticide of the same name, saying, like the product... His men made pests disappear. I was going to say, this sounds like something my mom would have on the farm to kill her infestation of flies. I wonder if she has a can of fly toxin. Well, I've, I've told you about the fucking fly gulag camp that she has set up there, where it's like a pit of just rotten shit, and right. they get in there, and then they drown and die. Is It'd it, be like piles of bodies. Is it there. a two-liter bottle? No, it's okay. it, it's probably could hold that much, but it's like a some specialized fly trap that you, you buy. She has like them all over the farm. That fucker will be filled with like Hell hundreds yeah. of ant, uh, flies. Yeah, you can make those yourself. Yeah, with a two liter mm. bottle, you like put a funnel in it, like a paper funnel. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. then you put blue cheese in the bottom and let it get rancid. Flies will go <laughs> in there, and then they cannot get back out. They're way too stupid. Dude, her sm- literally smells like fucking dead fish. Oh, it's so pungent. It's bad. Like, you'll be sitting there and be like, why does it smell like a fish house? And then you look and it's uh, the wind blew the breeze on you. Do you think the fly problem has anything to do with the fetid pig problem? Funny thing is, uh, you know how uh, some of the meat factories have been been having problems with coronavirus? Yeah. Uh, She thinks that all those pigs in those buildings were euthanized Uh. because they couldn't. Yeah, it's a factory line. Yeah, yeah. So. And when the factory shuts down, like that product's spoilable. I I read a news report. They were like secretly euthanizing all the pigs in those things. Oy. Secretly. Oi, oi, oi. So anyway, he refused to give up any more members of his group, but he did elaborate on the methods of operation. Members of Flytox staked out Gestapo offices in Paris. Any civilian who left the premises was followed. One of Marcel's men would be undercover in a Gestapo uniform and wait for them in a secluded spot to seize them. If the suspect denied working with the Germans, he had signed his death warrant. Okay, and just killed him instantly, huh? The suspect was then thrown in the back of a truck and brought to Rue Sewer for further interrogation. The suspected collaborator would then be executed by revolver and dumped in the forest. Petro swore to have personally killed 63 people this way. When asked where exactly Flytox would bury the bodies, Petio just couldn't remember. Mm, he also didn't know the names of the victims. He only saw them as enemies who needed to disappear. I mean, to be fair, this is a very good lie. It's great. For it, his, his it makes you seem like to... such a national yeah. fucking Medal of Honor recipient hero. Because they can't really identify the bodies, right? Correct. So... Speaking of Stiglitz, who, Mm. you know, gave me the inspiration for this entire series, it's also because of him that I bought the Modern Warfare 2 campaign remastered on PlayStation. Okay, all right. And there's a line in there from General Shepard where he's like, there are no front lines in war. This is what Marcel's trying to do, basically. He's like, I'm a secret agent killer of the Nazis without having to 
shoot a rifle on the front lines. I mean, he's killing them. He certainly is. Secretly. And he certainly is. Allegedly. That's right. (laughs) All of this work to liberate France, Pecho claimed, led to his arrest, imprisonment, and torture by the Gestapo. Upon his release, Pecho realized he was under close surveillance and retreated to his childhood home of Auxerre to recuperate with his brother Maurice. He returned to Rue Sewer for the first time in early February 1944, and it was then that he discovered his building had been filled with bodies in his absence. Here, why would they, the Gestapo let him go? Any idea? Just So they could follow him, and since he kept touting on about being he, a resistance... So he was even telling the Gestapo he was. Yes. So you they think figured that if, would be an instant death wish. But they let him go to try and find more Flytox agents, but of course they couldn't because it's not real. <laughs> After this unofficial private interrogation by Captain Simonin, Petro was handed over to the real police, and the following day, Captain Sinem... I'm, now I'm saying See, it wrong. I knew it. Every time you say it, I keep fucking hearing it in my head. Cinnamon. The following day, Captain Simonin would be brought before the same collaboration tribunal as Masu had been. This time, it was a five-minute hearing. Receiving a guilty verdict, Captain Simonin was ousted from his position as an intelligence officer. <laughs> so right from here, you're already seeing that from the beginning, this is a fucking shit show. Yes, The yes, Marcel is. case is a fucking nightmare. When the arresting officer not only held his own private interrogation but then was fired for collaboration the next day. Jesus. But this guy's got, like, the decks are just falling perfectly for him. He's a, is he a chaos magician? He I might, don't know. He might be. He might be. Well, think, I mean, literally the war is, like, the perfect cover for him. Oh, my God, it's so good. So per- like, him killing 54 people is obviously horrible, but when you got, how many died in World War II? millions and millions of people like yeah he's hiding right in there Mm. Petro was met at the police station by Lucien Pinel who was Commissioner Massu's replacement Ferdinand Galetti who was the public prosecutor and rising star criminal defense attorney Edmund Florio Florio had already defended Petro in the two narcotics cases in 1942 and was seen all throughout Paris as the go-to guy if you can afford him it always is. Uh, do you know Mike Florio? Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Is, do you think he's a Frenchman? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> okay. Or I, or maybe Italian. Does he have a T at the end of his no, name? No, he does not. Well, then he's probably Italian. Okay. He He's one of those, I gotta always be edgy. Or he, I always gotta be different than everybody, yep. sports announcers. Yeah, I hate him. Yeah. I don't like Florio Kind of like Shannon Sharpen. Who's the guy he argues with all the time? Uh, Skip Bayless. Yeah. Them two, that's their entire show. That is, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. Pre-trial questioning would begin on November 2nd, 1944. It would be a long and grueling process that would ultimately last 14 months. Pecho, at this exact moment, was facing 24 counts of murder. When he heard Commissioner Pinot say this, however, Marcel told him he was ill-informed. He had killed 63 people. But these, Jesus. he emphasized, were not the bodies that were strewn about his property on Rue Sewer. Pecho claimed that when he returned from his brother's house in Auxerre, the Germans had raided his home, stealing much of his medical equipment, including an ultraviolet machine, an infrared machine, and many other items he had hoped to use in his clinic after the war. He also found the house in great disorder, with furniture knocked over and broken, cupboards ransacked, and of course, all those bodies. Mm. Yeah, those will stick out like a sore thumb. <laughs> those will make you upset right away. <laughs> yeah. 
He first believed the bodies had been hidden there by members of Flytox who must have been raided by the Gestapo and panicked. Later, after contacting a few members in secret, he said he changed his opinion. It was definitely the Germans who dumped the bodies on his property. Obviously, he said, he couldn't just load the bodies into the truck and haul them away like he did when he killed all those 63 traitors earlier, because the truck was in the shop. This is why he ordered those 400 kilos of quicklime from Auxier. But of course, once he got the lime, he found the method was super slow and only partially helpful in disposing the bodies. Mm. Fearing a Gestapo raid, two of his Flytox members suggested they burn the bodies. These two colleagues were never identified, of course, because they don't don't exist. exist. (laughs) Here's the thing. If you're going to rent a U-Haul truck, do you have to say, I might be loading 63 bodies in here? I think they would prefer it if you gave them a heads up. That way they could, like, give you a cleaning agent for when you return it. Well, my guess would be they tried to upsell you on, like, the, the loading cart. And the refrigeration yeah, package. And they'd recommend, they'd rec, oh yes, refrigeration probably recommend mm. insurance. Mm. Oh, insurance Prepaid for Prepaid sure. gas. As long as you pay them, I don't think they'd care, to be honest. If with you. you pay them and return it with a full tank, <laughs> you can <laughs> fucking fine. do whatever. <laughs> you can fill it up with cum and drive it off a bridge. Like, uh, sarcasm aside, uh, I was. Weird way to pronounce that, by the way. <laughs> when I work for a rental company, like, they literally did not care what you did inside the car. You could, they said they knew people running drugs state to state or whatever. <laughs> sure. Because it's very weird when you rent a car and you return it the next day, or you you rent a car, go all the way down south, come all the way back within one day. Yep. And they're like, we don't care. As long as there's no drugs in the car, yeah. the car is clean and has a full tank of gas. That's, That's all, all they care. we care about. Exactly. It's not their problem what you're doing Fuck in there. Fuck it. Yeah. That's too many cars to worry about. Yeah. Rene Florio, I believe I called him Edmund Florio a few seconds ago. I mm. apologize. His name is Rene Florio. Mm. Rising star defense attorney was a crafty devil with a painstaking eye for detail. He was preparing a backup defense in case the resistance fighter defense fell through. If you'll remember from episode one, after the First World War, Pacho was incarcerated in a number of mental institutions as he was discharged from the army with 100% mental incapacity. I mean, that should tell you something. In World War One, where f- the French were so desperate, they said, you can't even be in here. <sighs> You're too crazy for yes, this. Yes, that should tell you something. Even more helpful for the defense... Pecho's vacations to the loony bin hadn't stopped immediately after World War I. Even as late as 1936, he was sent there for accidentally shoplifting a book and then screaming in the shopkeeper's face until he fell over and then running to the train station. Mm, I don't know how you accidentally do that. Surprised by the doctor's strange behavior, upon apprehension by the police, he was ordered to undergo a full psyche veil. Marcel was diagnosed as cyclothymic, which meant he was suffering from mild manic depressive psychosis. Not just a disorder, but psychosis. Okay. I feel like they probably don't use that word anymore. Cyclothymic? Probably I don't think not. so. Cyclothymic? I'm not even <laughs> sure if I'm saying it right. The psychiatrist noted that Pecho alternated between depression and hyperactive excitation. In the depression phase, he experienced anxiety, insomnia, and an overwhelming need to justify his past acts. In the manic phase, he would overwork until he burned out. 
Isn't this um, bipolar disorder? Pretty much, right? Yeah, or is it borderline personality disorder? I, I don't think want it's bipolar. To, I don't want to speak out of school, but it sounds like yeah. cyclothymic might be bipolar yeah. or BPD yeah, at the BBD. very least. So it sounds like. Pro- Prosecutor Galetti didn't like the thought of Pecho being let off on an insanity plea, so he sent his own crack squad of psychiatrists in there to run a whole test of physical and psychological tests. Pecho spent the entire time being a sarcastic asshole, calling the three doctors too mentally inferior to judge him. The doctors asked about his enormous wealth, which at the time was estimated at 250 million francs and 50 properties at least worth a million each. Jesus. Pecho asserted he didn't get that money from his victims. He made 500,000 francs per year from his medical practice. He had a booming antique trading business, and buying and selling real estate was keeping him profitable. I mean, look at all the antique stores. Clearly full of millionaires. Everywhere. Definitely not (laughs) Not dirty cat ladies. (laughs) The one down the street from here looks like it belongs in World War I. I would like to give a spin through a few antique shops, but Corona makes me so scared. It does. It it does. Honestly, I think I've talked about it before. Uh, My sister and her husband were at that antique store downstairs and in the basements, like the toy room. And they said there's only one path to walk around in like the baby carriage, like move by itself or something down there. Great. Creepy. Really great. Very creepy. So it's like a hoarder's den with, there's like a pathway through? Yeah. Like you have to follow a path. So I'm assuming to stop thieves, maybe. Maybe like Ikea, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fucking yeah. Ikea. I hate going there. <laughs> you don't like the Swedes? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, I don't mind the Swedes. It's the goddamn, it is. They like herd you through. You like walk through the whole path to get to what you need. Mm. It's tr- I mean, it's true. The team of doctors were impressed by Pecho's intelligence and understanding of psychology and forensic medicine. At the same time, they couldn't find any sign of mental instability, noting only that he appeared completely amoral. Hmm. Most importantly for the upcoming trial, the committee concluded that Pecho can and should be held responsible for his actions. Good, good. On Halloween, exactly one year to the date after his arrest, Pecho clammed up. There had been enough time, he reasoned, for Prosecutor Galetti to decide whether or not this goes to trial. The following month, Galetti sent the Chamber of Accusations a bulging dossier that weighed approximately 50 kilograms. Okay. There was enough evidence to warrant the Pecho case to trial. As to everybody else we talked about, all of his alleged accomplices, including his fainting wife, Mm -hmm. his ride-or-die brother, who obviously helped him acquire 400 kilos of quicklime, and the weird man that had all 50 of Marcel's suitcases stacked up like a Vegas baggage room in his attic, were all free to go. Really? All charges dropped. There simply wasn't enough evidence. It was concluded to convict any of them. The state would concentrate solely on Marcel Pachot, and the number of victims would be set at 27. It, I mean, I could understand most of them, but Marcel, or I'm sorry, Maurice, Maurice seems complacent. Maurice yes, seems He seemed the most complacent. Complicit. Complicit, complicit mm. yeah. Complacent would mean he's just chilling. <laughs> well, he <laughs> might be just chilling he's now. He's pretty happy. He's <laughs> not going to jail for the rest of his life. <laughs> They would show up every day at the trial. Mm. Him, his wife, Georgette, and their son, Gerald, would show up every day at the trial. Not Cinnamon? Cinnamon Cinnamon was too busy (laughs) being considered a traitor. Okay. March 18th, 1946, was a crisp spring morning. 
400 spectators and 100 journalists packed into the courtroom. Everyone was eager to see the man accused of killing 27 people, chopping them into pieces, flushing their organs in the sewer, and then disposing of the other remains in his lime pit or burning them in the basement stove. All the while, he amassed a fortune. Mm. Actors, movie stars, sports stars, resistance heroes, and ladies of high society wearing tiny feathered hats <laughs> flocked to the courtroom, jostling for an empty seat or a place to stand. Outside, street vendors were selling souvenirs as if this were a concourse at a sporting event. Look at this. Morbid curiosity has always existed. Always. 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 During this 13 months, well, pre-trial, you know, uh, Marcel wrote a fucking crazy book about <laughs> probabilities and statistics and how everything's related and shit and just crazy random musings. He sent that out to the outside and got it published and they were selling copies. He was really? signing them during intermissions. Okay. Yep. So he's basically Kevin Spacey from 21. He's the spaceman <laughs> from 21. We probably shouldn't even mention that man's name. The the serial pedophile yeah. Kevin Spacey, allegedly. I, I mean, or I, is it proved? I don't know. Does that make Seven even creepier? Yes. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Now that we know that he actually he is, is a seven. sicko, mm -hmm. yes. The evidence for the prosecution in total weighed more than a ton. All the suitcases, trunks, and baggage gave the courtroom the appearance of a train station. At the center of the long, high table sat the president of the tribunal in a long, scarlet robe. Mm, sexy. Yeah. <laughs> he would preside over the trial like a judge in our country and also conduct the preliminary questioning himself. At his side were two lesser judges who, at the end of the trial, would take part in the deliberations of the jury and vote on the verdict. Mm -hmm. Now, this is strange and could lead to a lot of problems, as they're voting on the fucking jury mm -hmm. as judges. Is this was meant to add uh, a layer of legal credibility to the jury instead of just having seven schlumbos off mm -hmm. the street judge someone. They would have two people with resounding legal education I, I guess i feel like when we covered the australian serial killer they had a system like this that sounds right i th i feel like they did like multiple judges i don't know how the brits do it I not think like this not like this mm -mm. okay this is they they go on to say that this is well actually i'll just keep going how's that okay sound? keep going at this time, in 1946, a French jury had only seven members, and a two-thirds majority was enough to reach a verdict. Prosecuting attorney Dupin sat to the right of the judges. He had only been given the case six weeks before, when all the other higher-ranking prosecutors declined. Even his assistant had spent his honeymoon cramming for the trial. Wow. To the left was the defense table, led by the celebrated Rene Florio <laughs> in a striking black robe with Oof. white cravat. And sexy. Four young attorneys assisted him, and they had each been assigned a fourth of the case and had devoted the last 18 months to preparing. Okay, are lawyers required to wear this shit in the courtroom? I'm not sure. I'm not sure <laughs> if they're all supposed to look like Harry Potter's Can or not. Can he not wear a tux? Well, you wouldn't what? wear a tux to a trial. You'd wear a suit. Well, but. okay. I'm, I don't know. I'm not that informed about the difference. Well, a tuxedo but... is like what you wear at a wedding or what James Bond wore in, okay. in the old okay. ones. A suit is like it has a tie, you know. Okay. 
not a bow but tie. But they both either. can have ties. That's true. A tuxedo is black, and a tuxedo <laughs> looks like a fucking tuxedo. A okay. suit looks like a suit. I don't know how to. <laughs> well, he had a black robe and a white cravat, so yeah, he looked like a Harry Potter character. He's like if Austin Powers was a witch, I think. Is what that <laughs> would look like right now. <laughs> so these four young boys, they all had the same haircut as Florio as well, and they would be referred to as the Florio boys. The Florio boys. <laughs> the Florio I love boys. that. Hell yeah. Sounds like a great French pop band. <laughs> also on the floor were nine civil attorneys participating in the trial. In French law, families of victims can hire attorneys to represent them in criminal trial, and just like the prosecutor, Crocs examine witnesses and the defendant. Okay. Another thing to be noted in French law, a defendant's past record plays a more important role for the prosecution than in countries like the U.S. In addition, the judge questions the defendant and can comment on all of the answers as well. The accused may challenge witnesses or the prosecuting attorney, even in the middle of a testimony, and in several famous cases, failure to allow these bursts of questioning were grounds for a mistrial. Any of the lawyers, prosecution, defense, or the nine civil attorneys <laughs> may intervene at any time. To outsiders like us, a French trial might seem extremely disordered, and this case was unfettered chaos even to the French. This sounds like if you were to mix Jerry Springer and Judge Joe Brown. Fuck. Fuck, man. It's too much. That's too many people <laughs> allowed to talk. But I, I was going to say, like, okay, so here you, if you're a defendant, you don't have the right to remain quiet during your own trial. You don't you have, have to. to answer. Mm -hmm. You mm. can ask any question. You can do it. You're just basically another lawyer at that point. Interesting. Huh. Sounds like fucking chaos. Yes. Hmm. I wonder if they still do this. I watched. Uh, yeah, they do. I watched some French trials, like. I looked up chaotic French trials on YouTube, <laughs> and they are pretty crazy. Really? They can get nuts. Are they still required to look like the powdered <laughs> wigs and everything? No. No, what, they're what? Not. I think the Brits still do. do like, when still... you're in trial, the judge still wears the fucking powdered wig and shit. Well, that's awesome. I'm, I'm pretty sure they still do, and they wear their weird robes. I think even the Canadians... Judges wear, like, weird outfits and wow. stuff. Well, our judges wear stupid robes, too, so maybe. Right. They could still have the goddamn uh, cocaine and hooker spit in their mouth and they show off. Remember when that one judge just, like, a few years ago got fired for jerking off under his robe during the court? I mean, should we... He should be allowed to do that, right? It's a flowy robe. Everyone's got to crank it's one out eventually. It's a boring job, Definitely. I would assume. And if you got a heart on... Make that sucker go away. <laughs> yeah, that's the only way to get rid of it. It's, te <laughs> it's technically a medical procedure. That's right. If you don't jizz at least five times a week, you're going to get prostate mm -hmm. cancer. That's just how it's it is. Pr it's been proven. Women, remember that. <laughs> Pacho entered through the back door reserved only for defendants, flanked by two guards holding Tommy guns, and he smiled to the jury in the audience. One journalist thought he looked like the devil's poet. Mm. The clerk read out the indictment, charging Dr. Marcel Pecho with 27 counts of willful homicide, committed with premeditation and malice aforethought for the purpose of preparing, facilitating, or affecting the fraudulent appropriation of clothing, personal items, identity papers, and a small fortune. So they, so their convictions get like right down to why they killed him. Hell yeah. Wow. Interesting. Of the victims, there were 15 Jews... 
nine gangsters, prostitutes, and other people wanted by the police, the Gestapo, or more commonly, both. And three people who had no known connection to the supposed escape agency. Mm. Did they, did you, do you know, did they confirm were a single one of the victims German? They did confirm a few of the families were German and German mm. related, mm. but as far as Gestapo sympathizers go, not. They didn't confirm that. No. Okay. All right. During the reading of the indictment, attendees watched Pecho closely. Although stooped over or propped up on an elbow, Pecho was said to have a formal bearing that still looked dignified. According to the New York Times, he had the high forehead of an intellectual with prominent cheekbones and thin lips like the edge or blade of a knife. <laughs> this guy's not getting laid. <laughs> Two things stood out to those in attendance. One was he looked much younger than expected, and two was his hands were not those of a doctor or surgeon, but rather they looked the part of a str- strangler or a butcher. Well, okay, you know something's fucked up when you take a man who looks like Al Swearingen <laughs> and assume he looks young. You know they are grizzled people in this courtroom right now. Holy shit. Without the beard, he looks a lot more presentable. He looks like a gentleman without okay. the beard, but with that fucking Rasputin beard, he looks terrible. Can you imagine Al Swearingen and you assume that is what an 18-year-old Frenchman looks oh. like? <laughs> Jesus Christ. Post-World War II. That's hard living. Yeah, that's he's rough. His skin is like leather and when shit. When an 18-year-old looks like a 70-year-old man. Mm. A catcher's <laughs> mitt. It's weird he actually looks younger in his one episode in Game of Thrones than he did then when he was with Deadwood. Where he plays like the pastor or whatever, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Peccio appeared bored and unflustered with the reading of his charges. He spent most of the time concentrating on his doodling in the margins of his copy of the indictment. The doodles, it was later discovered, were characters of the prosecutors, and they were pretty good. Okay. Marcel had good luck in getting assigned Judge Lesser for the trial. After the fact, Lesser would be accused of being too lenient with the defendant. He opened his questioning by telling the court about a Christmas Eve when Marcel was 11 or 12 and he stole a cross from a cemetery. Pecho immediately interrupted. That was a story spread by all the bigots and hypocrites in the country. The cross disappeared 200 years ago. There must be a statute of limitations, isn't there, Mr. Tribunal President? <laughs> the judge fired back with an actual conviction, the time when he stole electricity. <laughs> yes, I was convicted, but that doesn't prove that I was guilty. <laughs> and just like a that happened moment on Reddit, mm. the crowd burst into applause. <laughs> the whole bus is clapping. <laughs> Then the judge said, next you're going to tell me the whole dossier is false. No, I wouldn't say that. Only eight-tenths of it is false. More laughter wow. and applause. <laughs> He's like splitting hairs here. Eight-tenths? Who even measures in He's that? just being an asshole. He is. He is. He's very sassy. Lesser pivoted immediately to Rulisur, describing the property and its features. When he got to the triangular torture kill room with the false door, fake alarms, iron hooks, and one-way viewing lens, <laughs> Pecho interrupted. Nothing could be simpler. This was to be the room to house the radiotherapy equipment for my clinic. The bells in the alarms didn't work because 
I hadn't installed the electrical wires. The false door was simply for mm. decoration, <laughs> with the added effect of the wood being good for humidity. The small room had been exaggerated beyond recognition by the lies of the Nazi press. <laughs> the Nazi press. Nazi, Nazi press. press. <laughs> when asked about his February return to Rue Sewer after his mental vacation to his brother's place in Auxerre, Petchot said, I found a large pointed heap of dead bodies when I went there. I was very annoyed. <laughs> I didn't want that sort of thing about my house. <laughs> These aren't fucking invading squirrels coming through your attic. They're just, they're just not cockroaches. No. It's decomposing corpses. I mean, I don't think your neighborhood cats drug all these dead bodies in there and just try to bury them. Like, come on, dude. Oh. Uh, Can you imagine waking up? There's a pile of dead bodies oh, sitting I, in your house. Be like, who the fuck put all these Jesus dead bodies Christ. here? I don't want these about my house. <laughs> you gotta pay your rent if you're gonna be at my house, dude. <laughs> you fucking loaf about. <laughs> After several more hours of back and forth, at quarter to six, Lesser adjourned the court. A New York Times reporter managed to get an interview with two of the jurors, mm -hmm. which would be incredibly shocking on its own, but he also managed to get one with the tribunal president, Lesser himself. In an article that came out the next day, Lesser was quoted on the front page calling Peccio a demon, an unbelievable demon. He is a terrifying monster. He is an appalling murderer. He's not wrong. Two jurors and the judge speaking about the defendant like this in the middle of a trial to American press, defense attorney Florio now had grounds for a Ooh, mistrial. Of course, it's a fucking Americans trying to fuck it up. <sighs> Wednesday, March 20th, 1946, President Lesser opened by declaring that, opposite to yesterday, he would not allow matters to get out of hand. Also, they had replaced the two jurors that spoke to the press, and the trial was already behind schedule. He would preserve an atmosphere of calm and dignity. Okay. The prosecution started up on the murders of the nine gangsters and prostitutes. Pecho didn't deny killing them. In fact, he admitted to executing them and using this fact to support his defense, namely that he worked for the French Resistance and only killed traitors and collaborators who served the Gestapo. Mm, he said these okay. gangsters were in cahoots with the Nazis and the prostitutes were sleeping with German officers. Okay. I mean, at the time... It would be hard to disprove that, right? And it would be hard to not... I, I mean, people were getting brought up before these tribunal hearings, collaboration tribunal hearings, for, like, letting Germans shop in their grocery store and stuff. Really? But it was like, what else were you to do? They were the mm. occupying force. They yeah. were the government of your country. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, things... It, it, it was all public appearance at some mm. point. I mean, this is literally uh, how many years after they got him out of there? One or two, two years? Yeah, two years? year and a half, two years. Things are still, still incredibly still, fresh. Still still fresh. The French population, a, a large part of it, was still convinced that the Nazis were going to be coming back through the Ardennes. Really? Yeah. Like, French, French people loyal to the Nazi occupation were going to try and retake the capital for Nazi Germany. Right? People were still convinced of that. I mean, isn't Hitler dead at this point? Mm -hmm. Long dead. And the yeah. Ruskies took over mm -hmm. uh, uh, Berlin and all of that. There were still a lot of uh, 
a lot of French people that were quite fascistic at the time. Mm, they enjoyed okay. the occupation. Really? Oh, yeah. Okay. All right. One of these gangsters named Adrian the Basque <laughs> was beaten over the head with a rubber pipe filled with lead, sand, and bicycle spokes. Prosecutor Dupin acknowledged for some reason that the gangsters possibly had worked with the Gestapo. What? This is where rushing it gets you in trouble. Why, why, if you're the prosecution, would you make points that look good for the defense? I, to be fair, gangsters, I think, kind of are, uh, they'll just choose the side of the victor, right? Because they just want to make money, I would yeah. assume. Yeah. So maybe like in they... the gang cracks the Liberty Bell, when <laughs> yeah. Dennis decides they should uh, draft a declaration of dependence to the British. <laughs> <laughs> Come on back, Redcoats. We, we love you. you. We yeah. love you. Florio jumped on this acknowledgement and brought forth papers that proved that three of the gangsters were known collaborators and another one operated a brothel for German officers. Lesser asked Pe Peccio how much money he had made killing these gangsters and prostitutes. Peccio said his group didn't work for material gain, and as such, he did not receive a single sou. Not a dime, huh? According to Adrian the Bass's family, he had sewn a million francs into the shoulder pads of his suit, and as it happened, the suitcase containing that suit was in that very room. President Lesser agreed to open the suitcase to oh, look for alterations. Evidence number 54 was brought forward, a yellow suitcase with black leather corners that contained the bug-out clothes and belongings for Adrian the Basque. Upon opening it, they found the suit in question, with the shoulder pads stuffed with cash. <laughs> And the prosecution looked noticeably flustered. Yeah, I can flustered. imagine. If this was a football game, as the press seemed to look at it, most of them would say Peccio was winning after three days, 14 to 7. He was winning? Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. All right. I I love, I think we talked about it in uh, Ponzi, where people were stuffing money <laughs> in their clothing yeah. all the time. Yeah. God, what a what a world. What a time. Ugh. Back when like everybody could sew. Yes, exactly. I wouldn't be able to do that now. No. Day five was field trip day. It started at the courthouse where Professor Charles Sani of the Natural History Museum in Paris, as you'll remember from episode two, they brought in those bone doctors to help try and put together the body puzzles. Okay. He described the physical evidence uncovered at Pecho's home. Then the entire procession would move outside and into 15 waiting cars to be taken to see the horror house firsthand. So they took everybody. Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is like a Henry Lee Lucas fucking thing. Yes. Take fucking everybody everywhere. Actually, this is kind of reminding me of the OJ, OJ. trial. Yep. Yes, yep. I'm saying, because uh, when you were mentioning the other thing, I'm like, God damn, this reminds me of goddamn OJ. No shit. It's Jesus. like a copy-paste sometimes. <laughs> Was this playing on the radio, you think? Oh, definitely. You there were reports so? of this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm. Florio had arranged this change of location to show the jury how much the police had exaggerated the claims about Pecho's building, which the defense still claimed was to be converted to a medical clinic after the war. Before he could even finish his testimony, several journalists booked it out of the courtroom, hoping to beat each other for the perfect angle to get the photo of France's most deadly serial killer arriving in cuffs at the scene of the crime. My God. Dark tourists were already flooding to the area, so much so that 200 uniformed policemen had to hold back the crowds with barricades and batons. At the mansion, Marcel stepped out of his car, and President Lesser called the court to Pecho's office. Professor Sandy walked the members of the court through the rooms of the mansion, filled with what a Time magazine article described as 
a strange conglomeration of expensive Louis XVI furniture, human bones, and 600 volumes of murder <laughs> mysteries. Jesus. Le Figaro magazine described the building as having leprous walls, the decor of a shady office, and the mezzanine of an abortionist drug trafficker. Just gonna say the French one, a lot sexier. Oh, yeah. Okay. Leprous walls, definitely. The uh, So they just left the human bones in there for him to, like, walk by him? Here's the thing. <laughs> there, most of the human bones were taken out. Were mm. taken out. A lot of what people were seeing as bones were actually solidified lime deposits that looked like oh, bones. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Okay. The triangular kill room was too small for everyone to fit in at once, so they broke up into groups. One thing was missing from the report. The scope that Pecho allegedly used to spy on his victims. Defense attorney Florio was outraged at the police mishandling of evidence, and the jury started to look worried. Pecho explained, as he did countless times, that the Lumvisor viewer was just a small telescope that allowed him to see a certain part of the room, specifically, it would help him monitor his radiotherapy equipment he planned to install in the room. What about after it's installed? Does he still need it? Yeah, so he can make sure it's not like blowing up or mm, turning into I, I a mean, nuclear reactor or okay. something. Okay, why does it have to look like a bondage room? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are the hooks for? <laughs> Nobody ever asked what the fucking hooks were for, ever. They're hanging his jackets, maybe. <laughs> Eight putting iron his, hooks. Putting his pork pie hats on there. <laughs> A juror then posited that the walls were definitely thick enough to drown out any screams or cries for help, being as that it was 8.6-inch brick and all. Pecho explained the thick, soundproof walls as protection against the radiation of his x-ray machines. Naturally, he couldn't use lead because it was needed during the war for munitions. He's got all the excuses. Oh, he is a fucking options. If he was a fighting game player, he would be the option select master. (laughs) I saw, I saw on uh, I think it was Reddit or just maybe Google News. One of those guys is uh, in big trouble again. Which one? Ah, I can't remember his name. He's... Not infiltration, right? He was found innocent of all charges. Really? Oh yeah. Okay. No, this was some guy who I don't even want to repeat it on here, but he took a picture of a watermelon and then said uh, hashtag Watermelon Lives Matter and. Yeah, obviously we know how that can be construed, and he's out of there. Was it Marn? I I don't know who it was. All right, yeah, we don't want to misappropriate. (laughs) Now it was time to enter the basement. Professor Sandy was more like a tour guide at this point, explaining a little too gleefully what they had found, pointing to where they found it, and describing the state they found it in. It is here at the bottom of these steps that I discovered pieces of cadavers. Next to those two furnaces there, you see... There was half a human body split down the middle. In the larger furnace were human remains burning and sizzling with juices and blood oozing from the heat. Ugh. Sandy slipped up here and mentioned a bag containing half a corpse. Pecho interrupted, asking the professor to confirm it was a German army mail sack. Sandy remembered it as a cement bag. Florio asked, well, we can find out easily. The bag is in evidence, right? Sandy had no answer. <clears throat> this is truly exemplary police work, Florio said sarcastically. Mm-hmm. Was it ac- what sack was it? They didn't have they it in don't evidence. Know. Yep, mm-hmm. they lost it. Okay, it's not looking good. God. The Rising Star defense attorney's plan was working so far. Moving the courtroom to this location exposed many irregularities, any of which could cause a mistrial. 
The public was getting unruly and pushing past barricades and officers alike. The crowds managed to get into the building virtually at will. Souvenirs were stolen, such as an ashtray from Petro's office, medical brochures, and review journals with personal notes in the margins. One man was seen rushing out of the building carrying a stack of Petro's detective novels. Oh my god. Prosecution lawyers were even photographed that day holding what looked like human shin bones in their hands. But most likely this was those lime deposits. Lime deposits. But they certainly thought they were shin bones. <laughs> were they playing fucking boomerang catch with god. it? God. It's, it's ridiculous. <laughs> it's like he brought them there to show mishandling evidence and then crowds came in and stole even more evidence. You think those people would be arrested for stealing God, this shit? God. Unfortunately, this visit didn't deliver the wave of sympathy that the defense was looking for. This so-called future clinic of Doctor Pacho didn't look so innocent, but more horrific than ever. Yeah. Okay. So this was the, de the defense's idea. This entire thing. Okay. Mm -hmm. Not great. <sighs> Not good great for look. showing. Good for showing how shitty the police is. Mm. Bad for showing how innocent Doctor Marcel mm. is. Back at the courthouse for the late afternoon session, Professor Sani took the stand again, mostly to point out how absurd Pecho's statement was that he planned to put medical machinery in the triangular room. He wouldn't even be able to squeeze an exam, exam table into the tiny room, let alone bulky machinery. That's a good point. Florio interjected, asking the professor if any of Marcel's fingerprints were found in or on any of the objects taken from the triangular room. They did not. It was a huge revelation. Not only were Pecho's fingerprints lacking from the crime scene, but the professor testified further that the ones they did find remained unidentified. Okay, not a great look. On Tuesday, March 26, the courtroom was bursting at the seams with the largest audience yet. Today was the most highly anticipated session where all of the expert witnesses would give testimony, including the headliner, Dr. Albert Paul, the doctor of a thousand autopsies. Now, I remember you mentioned this. Doctor guy. of a hundred thousand autopsies. A hundred thousand. A hundred thousand yeah. is not that uh, impressive, I don't think. Okay. You mean a thousand's not that impressive? Yes. Gosh. A hundred thousand is. That's like Dr. Oz levels. Yeah, that's a grip. Yeah. <laughs> As he approached the stand with his gray tweed suit and white kerchief in his breast pocket, Dr. Paul described how the murderer scalped and removed the facial mask of his victims with a single cut making a circular incision from the chin to the hairline. He then proceeded to dismember the body. Despite the expert testimony, there were several fundamental questions that Paul and his team of forensic scientists couldn't answer. Wisely, the for once wisely, mm -hmm. the prosecutor brought up these problems before Florio could rip them to shreds. Dr. Paul explained basically that they found three main types of human remains. There were cadavers more or less intact. Okay. There were burned and broken fragments. And there were debris in 100 bony pieces. Those were the three main types of bodies they found. Okay, so there's basically only one that's sort of identifiable. Right. Okay. All right. All of the bones at Rulasur were human. Only two bodies, however, were found complete, both of which were very mummified. Mm. Dr. Paul and his team were able to conclude that the number of victims was a minimum of 10, but the shitload of hair and scalps they recovered suggested a much higher number, possibly up to 100. Okay. Yeah, you can't just buy hair and scalps at your local Ikea. Mm -hmm. Like, he's he's got to be getting it from somewhere. As far as the age and gender of the victims, five were men, five were women. The putrefaction was so severe 
They couldn't determine an exact age or date of death. In effect, the remains were in such a state of decomp that the toxicology examination failed to provide any definite conclusions. He doesn't discriminate. No. no. Hmm. You know, no. he, he, he's a very interesting serial killer in the fact that he doesn't, I mean, does he have a type? He seems to just kill the rob. Most right? of the men he killed were robust, but that didn't. Really? Yeah, that didn't really like. He seems like he just in. wanted the money. I think the in money the, in and, like the this is like hoarders gone wrong. And the doctor jigsaw aspect. I think he got off on that a bit. Okay, being like a okay. controlling torturer. But did, did he did he care if there were women or men who he, he was torturing? Mm-mm. Just Mm-mm. whoever he could get his hands That's on. That's right. Huh? Whoever he got in his little fly talks escape program to get him out of the country. Weird. Paul admitted that his team couldn't establish a cause of death either. Not a single bullet wound or fracture of the skull, which left the possibility of asphyxiation, stabbing, strangling, and poison. As mentioned in a previous episode, the thing that stuck out the most in all of these victims was the scalpel marks in the thighs of the cadavers, which were the result of someone taking a break while performing an autopsy, and for safety reasons, they would stick the scalpel in the thigh like a pin in a pincushion. Right. I'd love to know if they still do this. I bet they do. <laughs> Probably. I bet they do. Because the reason they do it, uh, based on the book, Death in the City of Light, mm. where we, I got most of this information, the reason they do it is so they don't accidentally nick themselves when they're picking it up and then, you know, have corpse juice on them mm. as well as... Okay. All right. I mean, yeah, that makes sense. I want to know how the hell scalpels are so sharp. Yeah. Never realized yeah. that. Yeah. Oh, I don't know. Who the fuck you. sharpens them? They'll fucking cut you, and you won't even <laughs> realize you've been cut sometimes. And I I wonder if they have to keep sharpening them, or is you just throw know. them away and get a new one? I don't, I don't know. know. Well, razor blades are pretty fucking sharp, too. Well, for like three cuts, and yeah. then there's shit. Yeah. Throw them away. Especially when you're scraping tint <laughs> adhesive off of yeah. windows. I've cut myself with a razor blade more than oh. I care to from work. The worst time I ever did it was when I thought it was facing the right way and I stuck my thumb on it to apply uh. pressure and it just fucking ripped me open. Mm. I think uh, our friend Austin said he was like holding one in his hand and he was turning the steering wheel and like sliced his oh. thigh open. Oh. Yeah. Ripped it right across his thigh. Yeah. Yeah. Next to be trotted up to the stand on expert witness day was prominent graphologist Professor Rougemont, who was here to testify about the handwriting of the letters his victims wrote their families once they were supposedly safe in Argentina. Mm. Rougemont believed the letters were written by the victims, though the writing was in disagreements with the sentiments of the writer. Rougemont detected a high degree of stress, probably being told what to write under duress or under the influence of drugs. So he's forcing them... To write these letters more than likely. Mm -hmm. Florio correctly asked if the professor really believed he could draw these conclusions based only on handwriting. When Rougemont answered yes, of course he could, Florio fired back with, if we had asked Peccio to write out his story and had Professor Rougemont read it, we could have dispensed with this whole trial. And the courtroom burst into laughter. <laughs> oh, we got a stand-up comedian during his serial killer's trial going on right here, huh? In Florio's hands, the defense kept racking up points. The prosecution learned, however, that a hot button to press for Peccio was to call him an agent of the Gestapo. At one point, he jumped out of his chair, shouting at the witness that posited that he may in fact be a German spy, screaming, Fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> 
The gallery erupted into yelling and murmuring alike. As Tribunal President Lesser pounded the gavel on the table and shouted for everyone to calm down, Pecho began asking the witness a question. In the confusion, Lesser didn't hear it and dismissed the witness. Florio began grinning like a wolf. This was the mistrial opportunity he'd been looking for. Unfortunately for him, one of the court clerks heard Marcel ask the question and hurried over to get the witness back to the stand. The question, as it turns out, was so inconsequential, nobody even wrote it down or remembers what it was. But it could have destroyed the entire case. Here's the interesting thing. They have so many, like, people going on here, and, like, the threat of mistrial seems to be... Imminent. ...can just, like, happen from anywhere. Mm -hmm. So, with that many people, Yak, and I assume you could basically mistrial a lot of shit and president lesser's banging the gavel being like everyone shut up he just said the <laughs> f word please stop what is this gavel like a could you just imagine like a special baguette with like two of them glued together like, <laughs> <laughs> a two-day-old baguette <laughs> <Yeah>. gavel <laughs> during that day's recess pecho was mobbed by audience members wielding copies of the book he'd written while in lockup and requesting autographs he would pose for pictures with anybody that asked for one, and he even signed a copy of his book to be delivered to President Lesser. This guy's getting better off better than Hulk Hogan's son did. What happened to Hulk's, Hulkster's <laughs> son? Remember, he, I think he killed that guy in a car accident. Oh, I didn't hear about They're, that. Oh, really? I, uh, I think they were street racing or something. <sighs> like, like, Just yeah. like Austin. Yes. <laughs> Speaking of Austin. <laughs> on Sunday, the Lord's Day, the court rested. <laughs> Can't go to court on Jesus's day. Come on. The third and final week of the trial started on Monday, April first. Wait, if it's April Fool's Day, can they call a mistrial? Can they do it? That's what I'm wondering. Mistrial, April Fools. <laughs> <laughs> All of the prosecution's witnesses had testified at this point, and the defense would begin calling their witnesses. Closing statements were to take place on Thursday, and then the jury would convene for deliberation. This was the schedule that Lesser lined out for the court. As the trial was entering its 13th day, and it fell on April 1st, astrologers and tarot readers were predicting a big day for Marcel Pichot, which was fortunate as it was the defense's turn to call witnesses. Ooh. Emile Pathier, a 70-year-old former patient and co-city council member from Yon, called Pichot a hero. Emile told the court all of the great things Marcel did for Jan, including the new modern sewer system and turning the school system from what he called a true nest of tuberculosis <laughs> into a quality top-rated institution. As Emile put it, Pecho was incapable of doing the things he had been accused of. God, can you imagine being introduced to, you're taking your kids to a school and they'd be like, this is a true nest of tuberculosis <laughs> over here. Or we you we used to be graded number one in in the country for the trueness of tuberculosis, <laughs> but now we're fine. We don't have cholera or any of those other diseases that kills kids. Any of those other like yeah cured diseases oh, nowadays. God. A nest of tuberculosis. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Every one of the defense's witnesses spoke with conviction. Neighbors, patients, and fellow townsmen alike praised the doctor. One witness told how Dr. Pecho had cured a man who suffered a serious injury falling out of a poplar tree, personally visiting him every day for three years and nine months. Jesus. Now that's it, care. The, okay, I'm pretty sure poplar trees don't get that tall, so 
like I don't know. Maybe he didn't. He probably didn't need all three years of those visits. Almost four years of visits. I think he just wanted to talk to him. To be <laughs> honest, there he is bored. I don't. Not trying to besmirch the elderly here, but my dad has a repair shop and he works oh, in yeah. a lot of elderly people's oh, cars. Yeah. They just like to come chat. I think probably they sometimes just like they just chat. drive in to chat. I'm sure they cut their own spark plug wires just so they can come in and chat a little bit here. They have their own tires like, got to go talk to Rick. I ain't got no choice. He's got to fix my car. Another witness testified that he had been so terribly stressed and overwhelmed at work that Petcho prescribed and even paid for his vacation. Okay, I'm I'm going to tell my doctor. I'm going to point this out here. Look. Why haven't you ever delivered this level? Of, I did an over-the-phone appointment, then received a $200 bill. Where's my vacation here? <laughs> did you do that? An yeah, absolutely. For your sertraline? Yes. I I'm th- going to have to do that soon. I thought like they were being nice because of everything that's going on. Didn't mention a bill, didn't mention <sighs> anything, and it's just like three weeks later I get this in the mail. I'm like, Jesus. Fucking hell. <laughs> Fucking A. Mental health is expensive, man. It's too ex- It's prohibitively expensive. <laughs> yes. Do you want me to be crazy, society? Is that what you mm, want? Mm. Bring that up again on Between the Bumbles. I have something to talk about All right. Talk about with you on there. Perfect. Regarding that. This went on and on for several hours. The court was hearing another side of Dr. Pachot. At the same time, although many witnesses testified to Pachot's devotion as a doctor, had the defense been able to establish the crucial point? Did Pecho serve the French resistance and kill only Germans and collaborators? Well, after 5 o'clock in the afternoon, President Lesser asked the prosecution to begin closing arguments. Prosecutor Dupin began in an old-fashioned, flowery style, saying things like, The records of the Court of France, preserved more than a century, are unable to provide an example of another trial as monstrous. Marcel, looking down at his notes, continued to doodle and yawn. I hope he... His doodles, I know you mentioned his doodles earlier, but, like, what if his doodles were like uh, Jonah Hill's in Superbad? Just giant just, throbbing dicks. Just drawing dicks everywhere. <laughs> That'd be amazing. So are they saying they've never had a killer as bad as this guy to compare their cases to? That's right. I mean, I'm pretty sure they did. They just probably never, like, caught him. Right. It was never a trial. Dupin continued. Yes, to find as many cadavers, to see as much blood, to witness as many killings, one must go to Auschwitz, where so many of our people have been systematically murdered by Nazi barbarian. Petio, still doodling, acted as if he were barely able to stay awake. Wow, okay, I mean, that shit is fresh in everybody's mind, mm-hmm. so that's be a powerful statement mm-hmm. right there. Dupid persisted like this for another two hours, calling Petio remarkably intelligent and a wonderful actor, devoid of all scruples, deeply perverted and sadistic. Petio kept making a show of looking at the clock. Dr. Petio was simply a murderer, thief, con man, and an imposter, anything but a resistance member. Dupin wasn't able to finish his speech that evening. Lesser adjourned the court at 7 p.m., and the prosecutor would have to wait until morning to call for the death penalty. Here's my one one question, though. The the French resistance fighters, did they arrest any of them, like, for murder or anything? They couldn't find a single collaborator that had ever 
not, not I'm not I'm not saying just the ones that work or allegedly worked with him, yeah. but like the real ones, any crimes they committed. Hmm. I wonder if they charged any of them with anything. Hmm. I don't I don't know. That's interesting because just playing devil's advocate here, if he was a resistance person and he was getting charged with all these murders and there were real resistance people who had probably killed Germans or whatever, yeah. were the French government, now that they're back under control, willing to charge them with I murder? don't think so. I don't no. think so. As long as it's a kraut, yes. you're fine. Yes. Okay. And if you're with, like, a legitimized resistance organization. You're cleared of crimes, okay? The war is tricky in that way, you know? So it's like... It's a tricky dick. Yeah. I'm genuinely curious about that. Now. War crimes and civil crimes mm-hmm. were definitely treated different. Hmm. The 16th and final day of the trial opened at 1 o'clock Thursday, April 4th. Socialites, actors, athletes, and foreign dignitaries, along with all the riffraff, squeezed together in the crowded courtroom tighter than herrings in a cast, wrote a correspondent for Le Figaro. Is that a Norwegian thing there? He's throwing shade at Norwegians or what? Dupin continued his speech, classifying Pecho's victims into three groups, Jews hoping to escape the occupation, gangsters and their mistresses, and patients who threatened to put his medical practice in jeopardy. So he was killing Jews, too. God damn. Well, yeah, he was pretending to run that fly tox organization to help Jews escape the country, and then... Well, I thought he was just helping whoever would come in there. absolutely, that too. But I suppose there was Jewish people That's going to be your main clientele, Mm. yeah. Rich Jewish people looking Mm. to escape. Pecho's claims that the human remains being planted by the Germans was preposterous as the bodies had been worked on by a skilled surgeon, not to mention the patterns of dismemberment corresponded to the pieces that had washed up in chests from the Seine River between spring 42 and January 43. After a final reminder that psychiatric evaluations had confirmed the defendant's sanity, Dupin was ready. Let justice be done and let us see Pecho soon join his victims in death. Surprisingly enough, families of his victims didn't respond too well to this as a closing statement. Probably the last thing they want to think about is their murdered relatives forced to spend the afterlife with their murderer. Right. Very insensitive statement. Yeah, that's just tacky. (laughs) That's fucking tacky. Florio would begin his closing statements for the defense. He was jacked up and ready to go. He confronted the prosecution head-on regarding the murder charges. The press had grossly distorted the facts presenting Dr. Pecho as a monster, an assassin, a thief, and perhaps a sadist. The Nazi-controlled press systematically suppressed evidence of Pecho's work for France, choosing to embellish his reputation as terrorist and torturer. The biases and mistakes in the media were nothing compared to the sloppy police investigation, Florio went on. Secure conviction, detectives had searched for any piece of evidence that could be used against his client while ignoring every positive testimony along the way. Florio retold Pecho's background from a glowing, one-sided perspective full of contradictions and omissions, going on about how Pecho was a volunteer infantryman in the Great War and was wounded in battle, honorably discharged with disability. From there, he struggled his way through medical school at the University of Paris, opened his own thriving medical practice in Yon, and patients testified repeatedly about the quality of Pecho's work as a physician, not to mention his achievements as mayor. (laughs) Okay, so isn't he lying about being wounded in battle? Well, yeah, it was said it's the that mental thing. It was said that he was like officially wounded. he was wounded from okay. that grenade, but 
all of his soldiers and comrades are pretty sure he stuck his foot over that pipe. Right, 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 mm-hmm. right. And then they kicked him out because mm-hmm. of his... Looney Right, okay, makes sense. Then, after surviving personal attacks from the Reich, Pecho moved to Paris and rebuilt his medical practice, all the while remaining a devoted husband and father. Yeah, he, he's a real Archie Bunker, isn't he? In fact, Florio continued, the very same emphasis on service beyond the call of duty is what forced Pecho to join the resistance. Witnesses had confirmed his strong anti-German stance, and indeed, there was nothing in that giant dossier that could be perceived as remotely pro-German. The evidence, moreover, was treated sloppily. The suitcases in which the items were found had been packed and unpacked by police at least 15 times without Pecho or Florio being present. After six and a half hours of passionate defense, for which he received a standing ovation, Florio left Marcel's fate in the hands of the jury. Six and a half hours? The longest of his career. Wow. Who's the, who's like the king of filibusters? Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, the old racist. Um, yeah, uh, is it? Oh, uh, God, he's got a stupid fucking name. Yeah, I think it's Human, or maybe that's his last name, Human. Or nope. Thurman? Thurman. Strom Thurman. Strom Thurman, yep. yeah. Damn, this is some, even though he's not a good person, it's some strong Strom Thurman Neither shit of them are good right people. Down. Neither of them are good people. <laughs> but I'm saying, how long did he talk? 26 hours straight or something Ooh, like that? Yeah. Ugh. That's my nightmare. Yes. <laughs> I don't want to talk for more than like three to four hours. Ugh. As lesser, the two lesser, well, (laughs) as lesser and also the two lesser judges and the jury retired to the deliberation room with the giant stuffed dossier, the crowd refused to leave their spots in fear of losing them, eating sandwiches, sausages, and fruit right from their seats. Mm, They're having a good time. Hell yeah. They they honestly think they're at a football game. (laughs) After was, two, was there a, a guy going up and down? Peanuts, get, get your sausages and fruits, yeah. It's like, sir, calm down. We got testimony going on here. After two hours and fifteen minutes of deliberation, the court clerk announced that the jury had reached their verdict. The jury and judges entered the silent room. The clerk of the court read down the charges. Pecho was found guilty of twenty-six out of twenty-seven charges of murder. After asking the defendant to stand, Lesser read the punishment. Marcel Pecho was sentenced to die on the guillotine. Ooh, very French way to go out. Pecho looked calm and aloof, not letting the sentence affect his face for half a minute. He then looked right at his family. He rubbed his hands together as if washing them and grinned with rage. As he was handcuffed and escorted from the courtroom by guards, Pecho turned and shouted, I must be avenged. (laughs) It's pretty fucking dramatic. (laughs) <laughs> exceedingly dramatic. <laughs> Jesus. Pecho was denied his appeal, which Florio, of course, immediately filed. Mm. And Jules Henri Desformeux was told to ready the guillotine. At 69 years old with a long white beard, Desformeux had been appointed Grand High Executioner in 1939 when his predecessor suffered a heart attack on the way to his 401st public execution. Holy shit. I'll, t- I'll just say this. If I got to get my fucking head cut off, I want it by a man with that long of a name. Oh, yes. Jesus. Jules Henri Desfony. <laughs> I'll be like, sir, I don't I don't know if I want to kiss you or let you cut my head off. Now that I'm lo- reading it again, I, it's probably day four now. 
Not deaths for new. There's too many X's and F's in there. <sighs> we don't know. It's, it's awful. The guillotine was introduced in 1792 mm. by its namesake, the French physician Joseph Ignace Guillotine, and was supposed to offer a more humane form of capital punishment compared to the hooded axe man who might miss, fail to use enough force, wield a dull blade, show up drunk, or all of the above. Technically true. After hiring a harpsichord maker to construct the first machine, and then practicing it on first straw, then sheep, and finally corpses, Guillotine improved the device by adding weight and changing the blade shape from crescent to triangle. The National Razor, the People's Knife, and the Timbers of Justice <laughs> were some of the popular nicknames for the Guillotine. I love it. The National Razor, I love that. <laughs> Fuck yeah. Okay, so it was circular originally. Yeah, like a crescent, yep. I wonder if, like, two triangles would have been most efficient versus, or is it one, do you think, the most? like? I think they got it pretty well figured yeah. out with the guillotine. Think because if it hits you, and yeah, maybe. Hmm. Plus your head's on, it's on a guide the whole time, and it goes down into that slotted guide too, you know? Well, I was thinking, like, I guess technically, if you're cutting a baguette, you start from one end and cut in a triangle pattern, you don't usually go straight down, right? Is that so? I like, don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know. I don't know. Interesting. All right. These guys got to figure it out. I mean, to be honest, would you rather get the guillotine or some drunk guillotine. guy with an axe? Guillotine. Right? Yeah. They might miss. 10 out of 10. <laughs> Actually, hit your thigh or something, you know? <laughs> oh, shit. If they're that drunk. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> I think it's time, Barry, I think it's time for you to retire here. <laughs> Early on the morning of Saturday, May 25th, Defourneau and three assistants arrived at the prison courtyard with an old horse cart loaded with equipment. They assembled the machine quickly and quietly, having done this countless times. By 4.10 a.m., everything was ready. Asked for his final requests, Marcel only asked to write a letter to his family, and 20 minutes later, he stood up and said, Gentlemen, I am at your disposal. He was offered a last cigarette and a glass of rum, as was customary in France. Not he, wine, huh? Nope. Rum. Oh, mm. they, you probably want a little head on when you're mm. going to get your head removed. <laughs> he accepted the cigarette, denied confession from the prison chaplain, and walked down the long corridor to the guillotine. After the nape of his neck was shaved, he was asked if he had any final words or final confessions. Peccio simply said, No, I am a traveler who is taking all his baggage with him. An edge boy. His feet were tied together, and he was strapped to the wooden tilting table and lowered into place with his neck in restraint. A lever was released. At five minutes after five, the head of Marcel Pachot rolled into the wicker basket with a thud. Mm. Thus ends the saga of Marcel so Pachot. They killed him really fast. Like, right after the trial. <laughs> he was only in there for a month swapping stories with his homies and stuff. I, For some reason in my head, the executioner, I just envisioned Pecios walking up there, and there's, like, say, a little piece of, like, neck skin on the thing. Like, oh, excuse me, let me clean that off here. <laughs> and he puts a little Lysol on there. He's like, okay, it's off of a breather. Uh, we're good. We're good, buddy. Oh. I don't want you getting no infections or nothing mm -mm. on there. In case this goes bad. But, uh, okay, so I, this entire time, I've been having one question. Could it be possible that he was maybe secretly actually working with the Gestapo, and his job was to catch people who were trying to flee and kill them. 
and he was hiding, or like after they were gone, or whatever. No, maybe no. He hated no? the Gestapo. He hated the Germans. He, I don't. He was not working for them at all. He was just a sick, depraved, just a sick fuck. serial killer. Yeah. Okay. It's funny because obviously he's he died with a lot of secret stuff. <sighs> he is a traveler that is yes, taking so. his baggage with him. I mean, he's basically like uh, Marshall Applewhite, so it's... Maurice and Georgette never talk to the press or historians or anything. Nothing. Nope. They mm. they remain silent the whole time. His son came out for like a few seconds and was saying some stuff, but then he, he stopped. But I don't... It's just so... I don't know. It's so weird. It's just... I feel like there's a piece missing that we'll never obviously find out, but... Yep. Uh, very, very crazy. I, obviously, he's a murderer. I don't think we can deny that. No. But his, it seemed like his his lying skills were out of this world. Like, you'd ask him a question, he immediately has a, a rebuttal. A perfect a full, answer yep. to explain everything. A full, so. way too complicated, overcomplicated answer for the most part. Do you think 100% for sure he probably killed all of those people? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think almost everyone that was ascribed to him, he did. Mm. Way more than 27 that he was charged with. Yes. Well, yes, yes, yes. If you have, like, a pit of dead bodies, I mean, yeah. it's a lot. And investigators could only actually identify 10 from the remains. Mm. But it's like there were several, several, several. Did, did we get a timeline or we have a guess, like, what year he probably started killing so uh originally when those bodies washed up in the sen it was from um spring of 1942 okay. until january of 1943 which then lines up with when he was imprisoned by the gestapo and went to auxier and then came to paris and started so you think maybe within a year year ish two years two somewhere years, in there two years god that is so many people Two years. It's a revolving door of people. I wonder what like made him like snap and just start doing that. Mm. Makes he, you. Wonder. I mean, he was always a fuck. Well, you know? he he yeah. was, but there, there's probably was, usually always like a an event that pushes them to start doing true. that. You know, maybe, maybe he was, had fantasies. Maybe he got poor. I mean, and he, then wanted all the money. He loved detective like, books, and he yeah, loved, maybe that was part. It of seems it. to be a connection in yeah. a lot of these guys. They love violent video games. Yeah, <laughs> he played Doom on DOS for his first time, and it just and he heard his first Marilyn Manson album. Boom! Fucking just lost to start killing people. That's instantly. it. That's it. He's, <laughs> he he watched, started Columbine he, and he, everywhere. Yeah, he watched Hostel, and he, he was done. All right, well, if you, all you people out there enjoyed it, I'm sure you did, mm -hmm. uh, you can email us at bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. What's it, Adam? Bumblebuttpodcast at gmail.com. As always, follow us on Twitter at bumblebuttpod and Facebook and Instagram at bumblebuttpodcast. Now it's time for the most important part of the show, at least if you ask Cody, the iTunes review. Unfortunately... We didn't get any. None again. But I know we got more Spotify thumbs up. I know Did that we? for a fact. I, I think a lot of people are maybe we'll over that. maybe I'll switch up my episode ending to say Spotify reviews. No, but you can't no, leave a no, review. You, right. you just hit follow. I All still want iTunes do. reviews. I yes, still want them. Absolutely, right. absolutely. Well, fuck it. Leave us one, please. <laughs> and also, the other most important part of the show, it's Patreon. We got the a new one. We did? We did. That is patreon.com slash Podcast. Can you tell me who this new upstanding person may be? 
Yeah, thank you so much to uh, Hebron Velarde. Thank you so much. They are at the $5. The carpooling with Kemper? Right. So they'll be getting their ginormous sticker here pretty soon. So, yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you very much. I love how big our stickers are. Absolutely. Yeah, we got plenty of them left. uh, Sign up. Buy a fucking shirt. mm. Please buy a shirt. I really want to get another another one coming since we got a little bit of Patreon money we stocked do. up. We do. Uh, these goddamn mic stands that we want are never in stock. Uh, so It's unbelievable. If anybody out there has a line on those drill-in <laughs> mic stands, yeah, let us know. Please. Or if you're crafty with... Uh, um, Metals. 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 Yeah, yes. metals. <laughs> I was going to say metals me- next. All you really need is like a little crane arm. And then with the uh, little screw on it, what is threaded. it? Five eighths, five eighths. Thread, that sounds I right. Think. Yeah. yeah so. I, wa- I almost said five ten, but that's for vapes. <laughs> yes. Uh, all right, everybody. That is, I think, going to do it for all of us here at Bumblebutt Podcast. Thank you so much. I've been Adam. Uh, Jordan's on maternity leave, so right. I will say thank you to him and thank <laughs> you to little Ollie. And uh, thank you, Cody. Thank you, Cody. Thank you, Adam. Awesome man. That's awesome. Thanks, everybody. Have a nice weekend, unless it's Tuesday. Ah, uh, congratulations, Ollie. That's right, Ollie. Welcome to the world, baby. Bye.